Hey, hey D&D, D&D fam. fam, I'm Quick. And I'm Lee, and you're listening to Divas, Divas and Duckets. So what is a diva? I think divas get a bad rep, but to me, diva is all about the attitude. As for ducats, it's your finances, your assets, Skrilla, Guap, your coin. We're talking all things with the potential to affect your pockets. And while we're attorneys by trade, we are divas by choice. Divas and Ducats is for entertainment purposes. Y'all, we are not Series 511 or <laughs> 703 professionals. This does not create a financial advisor nope, nope. or attorney-client relationship. The views expressed here are solely our opinions and the opinions of our guests. It's just our opinions, y'all. Okay, Divas, let's talk Ducats. D&D fam, welcome back. Yes, 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 welcome back. We are nearing the end of October. I cannot believe we only have two months left in 2020. Yes, I'm kind of glad about that. It's been a long year. It has been a long (laughs) year. Some really, really heavy things have been going on. It's just... To make it feel even longer, right? This has yeah. been a long year. Yes. <laughs> but we are here on a bright note, and we have a very important topic today. Mm-hmm. Um, we are talking about healthcare bias and its effect on uh, women of color, especially in terms of maternal health. Yeah. Some of you may know or have just heard various stories, even from, you know, people of means. Or your own experiences, yeah. Yeah, where, you know, you've tried to advocate for yourself, and doctors may not have believed the amount of pain someone was in Mm -hmm. or, you know, through their own perhaps unconscious biases may not have given the same level of care. And unfortunately, that's led to disparities in terms of medical outcomes for women of color. So we have a medical professional here today. She is a board certified OBGYN mm-hmm. and she'll be tackling that topic with us. A lot of the issues that are affecting women of color. And we are just really excited to cover yeah, this. And we're so super excited to yeah. have the doctors in, y'all. The doctors right. in. So before we get into that, we are going, of course, recognize our boss base. So who do we have, Lee? This week we have Letitia Manuel. She is the founder and chief executive officer of of Summit Professional Consulting, LLC, which is a consulting firm based in Charlotte, North Carolina. They provide business owners with analytical advice and strategic planning to improve their business results. And Letitia has more than 20 years of business management, finance, sales, and marketing experience. In 2018, she put her entrepreneur hat on Mm -hmm. and, you know, wanted to focus on that business strategy aspects and tactics that led her to just make that transition from managing business and operations to more of the consultations with small businesses and entrepreneurs. So needed. Yeah. And so she focuses on just building continuous improvement culture, which we kind of talked about. Mm -hmm. Black businesses always be improving (laughs) and create strategies and, you know, new processes that people can implement to increase their efficiency across their businesses and organizations. Mm -hmm. And her passion is to help others along with her ability to tackle any challenge. And that's equipped her, in her opinion, for her success. And she truly believes in this acronym HOPE, Help Other People Excel. That is her strategy. I love it. Yes. So (laughs) Letitia graduated from North Carolina A&T State University Mm -hmm. with a degree in computer science. And then she received her Master's of Business Administration from Meredith College in Raleigh. 
when she is not helping entrepreneurs level up, she -hmm. spends a great deal of her time in the community in various service projects such as feeding the homeless, collecting and donating to shelters, safe houses for runaway teens, and she has been a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated for 23 years. And in Mm. January, don't do this. No, I was like, 23 (laughs) years? Hey, congratulations. (laughs) In January of last year, 2019, she was appointed by the Board of County Commissioners to the Mecklenburg County Small Business Entrepreneurship Advisory Board. And that's where she provides just valuable advice about the small business community. Mm-hmm. So, that's awesome. Yeah. She can be reached through Summit Professional Consulting. Her website is Summit, that is S-U-M is in man, M is in man, I-T, professionalconsulting.com. And she is on Facebook and Instagram at Summit Professional Consulting. Yes. All right. So, Miss Letitia, we say, hey, bae. All right. So, let's get into it. Yes. I was listening to you read her bio. I was like, I remember starting off as a computer science major until I got my first D. And I (laughs) quickly (laughs) switched that major over. That was a joke at my alma mater. Everyone started as a biology major. Right. And it got real. But let's get into our wonderful guest that we have uh-huh. today. I am so, so excited to introduce you guys to Dr. Cynthia Wesley. She is a board-certified OBGYN and a fellow of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology with over 16 years of experience. She has excelled as a national speaker, a vulvar skin specialist, uh-huh. owner of a woman's clinic, OBGYN department chair Mm. and as previous medical director for the OB hospitalis program at Atrium Health University. Currently, she is the founder and medical director of Virtual GYN LLC. Dr. Sin is passionate advocate. She's a passionate advocate for women's health in both her professional and her personal life, and we can both attest that she is amazing. Mm -hmm. Say hey to the people, Dr. Sin. Hey, thanks, guys. (laughs) I appreciate you all having me on this evening. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you for taking time out to come to our podcast, you know, to give this wealth of information that uh-huh. we are going to be discussing to our D&D family. And we're just, I mean, we're really honored to yeah. to have you here. Yes. Thank you for Thank taking you. the time. Thank you so much. For sure. So let's kind of get right into it. Um, we you know we're going to be talking today, like she said, about the maternal health for women of color and how biases specifically affect women of color in, in when it comes to the, the medical field, when it comes to you know, going to an OBGYN, selecting mm-hmm. your OBGYN, mm-hmm. how those treatments, how medications, how it all is affected by biases that you may or may not realize. You might just think that's kind of just the way it is, right? But like she said, it ultimately has uh, a heavy cost um, yeah. in some cases. So can you, you know, talk a little bit about some of the biases that you've even experienced in, in healthcare? Well, I think when we come to biases, which leads to disparities in mm-hmm. healthcare, they can be seen in so many different arenas, and and the history just is so deep, yeah, and very rich as far as what uh, patients of color mm-hmm. really deal with. And unfortunately, we've become so conditioned, yeah. not just the African American community, but also 
the white community, the Hispanic community, uh, to so many different things that a lot of times people don't even recognize their behavior mm. as bias. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's so many assumptions that are made. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of research that has been done to really expose this problem, just basic biases. There's been research done uh, that has shown, that has proven that some people who are actually providers assume that people of color tolerate pain better mm. than other people, that their skin is thicker than other people. And it's amazing that that's our mindset mm-hmm. in 2020, Yeah, you know? Mm-hmm. So when we start talking about disparities and biases, we have to break it down mm-hmm. to so many uh, different levels. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so, the, like, the pain, I, I, I've heard that before and kind of, I'm not going to say I dismissed it, but it was like, no, that, that can't be, like, true. Mm-hmm. Like, why, what is that? Is that a study in the medical field? Like, what makes them think that we tolerate pain more? Is that historical? Yes, it's historical. Mm-hmm. It's more of a social conditioning that's been prevalent in our country. Uh, black Americans have been systemically undertreated for pain mm-hmm. relative to white Americans for years. Right. If you even go back and look at all of the research that was done on people of color without their consent mm-hmm. and things of that nature, it's amazing. If you go back to World War II, they experimented with the mustard gas on black soldiers. Right. Everyone knows about the Tuskegee experiment, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it it was thought for many years, and subconsciously, some still believe this, that there are biological differences in people of African-American descent. Yeah. And there, and I, so I don't want to, because I don't have the facts in front of me, so you mm-hmm. may be able to attest to it, but there was even like the first pap smear or something that was conducted on an African American woman was done without any kind of pain medication. Well, not just pap smears, um, surgeries were done mm. on black slave women, mm. and many people watch, you know, it was normal part of medicine. Yeah. And that leads to a lot of the things that we deal with today. Uh, fortunately, those type of things aren't happening mm-hmm, in 2020. Mm-hmm. But when we start talking about research that, you know, some diseases are more prevalent yeah. in women of color or they have more deleterious effect in women of color, mm-hmm. but we make up such a small percentage of the population that's in the research study. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, some of that is because they're not really reaching out to us to include us in the studies mm-hmm. and we feel like they're not really worried about us mm-hmm. but on the flip side because of our social conditioning because of the history that our ancestors went through there are a lot of people of color who are weary of research oh, yeah. who don't Absolutely. want to be a part of that because they feel that they've experimented on us enough there's this major distrust when it comes to uh, the healthcare, the med- medical community. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, it's, so. it's it's justified, you know. Like yeah. you said, that 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 history is is real, you know. And I don't, I don't know, I don't know how you combat that because, like you said, you can't necessarily test how a drug 
today would impact someone, you know, a woman of color if they're not in the studies. But how do you get over the bias of thinking, you know, for lack of better terms, that I'm just going to be a guinea pig or that they're going to give me the placebo, um, mm. you know, while other people actually get the treatment? Like, how do you combat that so that the studies can be less less, you know, I guess That's more equally skewed, weighted. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, I think you have to hit it from multiple angles. Mm. You know, number one, we have to call a spade a spade. Mm-hmm. We have to be honest. We have to start having very honest discussions mm-hmm. about disparities in healthcare and not sugarcoated. Mm. Uh, I believe that's starting to happen, starting to happen, but we got a lot of work when it when when that's concerned. Number 2, we really need to have more providers who look like the patients mm-hmm. taking care of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right? It in- improves the trust. And plus there's been studies that have shown that when black physicians take care of black patients, those black patients have better outcomes than when they are taken care of by non-black physicians. Mm-hmm. Now, that's just not my opinion. That's mm-hmm. what the facts right. have shown. That's what the research has shown. Mm. And do you know, I'm, I'm not sure if you have this information just off the top of head, but what is that percentage of you know African-American doctors in the OBGYN specialty? Well, I was trying to find it specifically for OBGYN, and it was a little bit difficult to to (laughs) find. But Mm -hmm. in general, when we look at the overall population uh, of providers within the United States, Mm -hmm. black physicians, African-American physicians, uh, only make up 5% of physicians Mm. in the United States. However, we are... 13.4% 13.4% of the population. Mm-hmm. Now, when we take it down to North Carolina statistics, it's even worse. Mm. Wow. Okay? In North Carolina, we are 22.1% of the population, African Americans. Mm. All right? But we only make up 7% of the physicians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, that's a problem. And then it gets even deeper than that. When you really start looking at the demographics, the majority of your African-American physicians, and I'm saying North Carolina because that's where I live and Mm -hmm. that's where you guys live, are mainly concentrated in the urban areas. Mm. But our larger black populations are in uh, in the northeast and the southeast of the state. Mm. So true. Yep. So the rural populations are really experiencing disparities mm. in healthcare. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So that they get the double whammy. They already are rural, so have less access. Right. And then there's even a smaller percentage of providers that look like them. Right. Okay. And in North Carolina, it's not just with physicians. It's across the board when you're looking at health, the healthcare workforce. Mm-hmm. The only healthcare workforce that was properly or that is properly represented in the state of North Carolina is uh, licensed practical nurses. Hmm. That's it. But primary care physicians, respiratory therapists, registered nurses, even our dentists, pharmacists, of course, surgeons, nurse practitioners, dental hygienists. We're all underrepresented in our state. That's heavy. Like to think, mm-hmm. oh, you know, the LPNs, they're equally represented, but anything higher than that, it starts becoming, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. wow. 
Mm-hmm. So let's get in a, a little bit into, you know, maternal health specifically. Um, and, you know, me, like I said earlier, me and Lee both know personally mm-hmm. um, Dr. Sin and how wonderful she is, how <laughs> um, knowledgeable she is really yes. and how she really, really takes her time with her clients, which, again, that that's a whole thing in our communities as well, like we're feeling like we're just a number, right? We're just yeah. we're just a piece of we're a manila folder really. Right. Where you come in, you look at the folder, we see our doctor for three minutes, they don't know who we are mm-hmm. and we really know the nurses more. Right. So, you know, like Lee, can you kinda get into your journey of how you even came in, yeah. you know? So sure. So I actually was looking for it was a really a long process. I'll try to make short. (laughs) So I had decided just through various kind of disappointing experiences within my like OBGYN appointments that I wanted to get a doctor who looked like me. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt like so for me, what I was experiencing was I was never a slim chick, you know what I mean? Thick and proud. Mm -hmm. But I always had issues mainly maintaining my weight and so it was always a struggle for me and so I would notice every time I would go to the OBGYN of course they you know they weigh you they do Mm -hmm. different things and so it started becoming a thing the other important piece is that um, cycle wise my menstrual was always irregular right just just from a teen on so when I would go to my appointments my doctors who were um, actually white males they would say Mm -hmm. to me well you're irregular so we want to put you on birth control to regulate that and then they would just suggest that I lose 20, 20 to 25 pounds. Right. And that would be the end of it. Right. And so throughout the years, you know, of course, it gets difficult or more difficult as you get older. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I just I would do the work and I would just, you know, lose five here, 10 yeah. here, stack. You know, it just was really like hitting a brick wall I felt like you know or riding on a flat tire like I just felt like it wasn't happening for mm-hmm. me and tried all the diets okay HCG low carb and your vitals were good it yeah. wasn't like it was a diabetes <laughs> or a high blood pressure no. like your vitals were fine yeah so I you know didn't have high blood pressure um, cholesterol anything like that it was just like that just kept being like my Achilles heel I just mm-hmm. always struggled and so I remember the last conversation I had with a doctor that just really left me peed off for lack of better words (laughs) I was there and just talking to him about you know I'm trying to lose weight and everything like that and he said to me you know there's this thing on the um you know it's on every food label called uh nutritional facts (gasps) And, wow. you know, if you just read and I am not, yeah, I'm not a braggadocious person. I'm not that chick, but I <laughs> so badly wanted to say him, sir, I took bar exams and managed to get through law school. I think I can read and understand, right. you know, portion sizes. So finally, actually, um, quick, I was just talking to, uh, you know, my appointment was coming up and I was just like, I don't want to go through this again where they just keep putting me on birth control. We keep going through the same cycle of you need mm-hmm. to lose weight. Mm-hmm. So um, quick mention that her sorority sister was an OBGYN. She gave me the information and I just said, OK, you know what? I'm going to try and we're going to see what happens. Right. <laughs> so I went to Dr. Sin's office, you know, had the usual check in and we just talked uh, really at the at the first appointment I was explaining to her you know I am trying to lose this is where I am and you know it, it just about my cycle and everything like that and she she kind of was you know thoughtful and said mm-hmm. I want to run some tests because what it sounds like is PCOS which stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome and this is the first meeting yeah 
the first one. <laughs> so um, I had a couple appointments that actually, you know, um, I don't think there's an end-all, be-all, but mm. they do a combination of um, there's a blood test to check your hormonal levels, and then there's an ultrasound so they can look at your ovaries and kind of get images. And so um, we did those appointments, and we came back, and one of the, I guess, uh, telltale signs is elevated testosterone and... Um, the, the images that they can actually see around your ovaries. And so we sat down and she just explained the cycle that part of it, the funny thing is what can regulate your cycle is losing weight, but what makes it hard to lose weight is your hormones are not right. in, you know, they're not balanced. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, you know, discussed a plan in terms of, you know, balancing my hormones, of course, but then that's when you you might notice easier outcomes with mm-hmm. the weight loss. And so she actually put me on a, I guess, birth control that that sought to do that, that actually balanced the hormones because everything else, it was just like, your hormones are still doing what Mm -hmm. they're doing. So that's why you're, you're meeting resistance with losing a weight. And so, you know, shortly after that, I did get a trainer and everything, but I've been able to lose like over 20 pounds. And that was the first, like I said, first meeting. Wonderful. And yeah. 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 And I remember you, I remember you coming out that office and calling me crying. Like, just like, (laughs) it was like, you finally had gotten hurt, you know, Mm -hmm. like, like how yeah read the nutrition label yeah and very condescending and i think for me it wasn't so much like it was just to have an answer mm-hmm. to not feel and i know you're not supposed to use the c word but to not feel crazy like right. maybe i'm not just maybe i'm not working hard enough to yeah. know that no your body will do this mm-hmm. thing but it needs some assistance yeah you know and and dr sin like when you were having that conversation with her like did it ever i guess did you ever have a thought to think, oh, you know, to do the typical, what she had previously been suggested, you know, just get on birth control and, and lose weight? Like, was that mm-hmm. even your approach? Are you just, when it comes to, you know, women of color, do you even approach it differently? Like, you realize that there are certain things that affect us that might not affect other women. Well, I think, first of all, for every patient who walks in a door, you need a detailed history and physical. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's where it starts. And if you know that someone has already been over the river and through the woods, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> then you got to start thinking a little bit deeper Different, into yeah. what is truly going on, right. you know? And um, and that right there I would do for any patient, mm-hmm. regardless of, you know, their background. Right, right, right. But with each patient, and part of taking that thorough history is understanding their background because some people are more, more prone to, you know, different conditions. Mm-hmm. And that is part of the problem when it comes to disparities in healthcare is that too many times people are not paying as detailed attention that is needed to women of color Mm -hmm. and to the problems that are more prevalent in us. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Lee, I appreciate your story. You about made me tear up. I'm I'm glad that you had a good experience. And, uh, and, you know, it can be tough because you you Mm want to hear every patient. Mm-hmm. And you want to make sure that every patient is getting the care that they deserve. Right. Mm-hmm. Not just that they need, that they deserve, mm-hmm. you know. And um, the way healthcare is kind of set up, sometimes it's difficult to accomplish that. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm glad that you've had success. 
And that makes yeah. me feel good. Makes oh, yeah. Feel good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Sure. I called her, and I'm not typically a crier. Like, no. so quick as I was like, I mean, you're like a thug. But Straight. I think, yeah, just the, it was just a long journey. Yeah. And so, the, like I said, I think there was a relief. And, mm-hmm. of course, you don't want something to be wrong with you, but it's just like, but that makes sense. But it's not. You're right. You, yeah. you hear it's not me. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um. And so there are also, you know, like she said, she b- before she was, you know, completely with, first of all, not even her own um, sex. She was with a male and then a white male on top of that, you know. Mm-hmm. And like she said, you got the condescending responses. And I've heard it so many times. Um, I was listening to a woman's story about trying to have um, children. Mm-hmm. And the, the same thing was happening with her. She went to, a, a you know, a white male doctor. And it was kind of like, well, you know, more so like simple, like the super simple answers or like you just need to lose weight like that's mm. that was their solution to everything like just lose weight you know um and can, so can you talk about like how those biases like start to affect like with maternal health and some of the risks that women of color like we are you know with fibroids specifically you know are, are, do we have higher instances of fibroids than other women you know in in different races Okay, well, um, that's a lot there. That's a yeah. loaded question. <laughs> that's a loaded question. But we can start with fibroids. Yeah. And so with fibroids, just so the audience knows, they are the most common benign pelvic tumors mm. uh, in women. And they are a major indication for hysterectomies. Mm. You may hear the word leomyomas. Mm-hmm. That's the fancy word that means fibroids. Okay. <laughs> and they are definitely more prevalent more severe Mm. and less likely to regress after menopause in African-American women. Hmm. So just to give you some statistics, it affects 25% of African-American women by the age of 24. Wow. Mm. It is present. Fibroids are present in up to 80% of African-American women by menopause. Mm. 80%? Yes. It doesn't always mean that they're symptomatic. Mm. Okay, because if your fibroid is not causing you any symptoms, then there's really no no need to do anything about Mm -hmm. it because they're usually benign. The Mm. risk of a fibroid being cancer is less than Mm 0.02%. You know what I mean? But unfortunately for a lot of women, they do have symptoms. Mm -hmm. And I... I want to go on record by saying that there are very, very good, compassionate mm-hmm. um, male physicians out there, oh, yeah. white, black, Asian, what have you, mm-hmm. Hispanic. Um, but sometimes when you've struggled with how do I lose weight yourself, you know what I mean? Mm. If you've been laid up in the bed with painful periods or that pain just hits you out of nowhere and you feel like your knees are about to buckle, right. mm. then it's just a different understanding. There, It's just you get where the patient is coming from yeah. when they come in and speak with you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So uh, it is a problem with fibroids and it's hard for women especially women of color to find women who look like them mm-hmm. who get it, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So we talked about percentages. So when we talk about black female physicians in the United States, we only make up 2% of physicians. Mm. 2%. Mm. So it gets more difficult mm-hmm. to 
in that exam room with someone that who gets like it. it. Yeah. 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 You know, who experiences, who can appreciate the pain that you have mm-hmm. and understand that your pain is just like anyone else's pain. Mm. You know, so uh, when it comes to fibroids, what we do know that when it even comes to treatment of the fibroids, that there there is disparities in health care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When it comes to surgeries that women have for the treatment of fibroids, even hysterectomies, yeah. that there are disparities in health care. Mm. Uh, I have so many just friends mm-hmm. who come to me in tears sometimes complaining of horrible, painful periods. And they have a history of fibroids. And the only thing that has been presented to them was hysterectomy. Hmm. And that should never, ever be the case. Hmm. That should never be the case. There are so many other treatment options that we have to make sure that our community is aware of. Hmm. Now, sometimes you do end up with a hysterectomy. Right. Hmm. But, but not it as shouldn't a first be the first option. choice, right. you know. Yeah. But African American women are two to three times more likely to have a hysterectomy, and and they have a sevenfold increase relative risk of having a myomectomy, which is, <laughs> and that's when we go in and we just we leave the uterus. So removal mm. of the uterus is hysterectomy. Okay. okay. Myomectomy is where we just go in and we remove the fibroids but leave the uterus. Okay. Okay. All right. So now with those hysterectomies, is there a disparity in terms of maybe the performance of like a partial hysterectomy? So I guess where they still leave the fallopian tubes and the ovaries intact, or do they I don't. I don't know. Oh, yeah. not okay. Would you offer so let's talk yeah. about that. Let's mm-hmm. talk about that. First of all, I'm gonna go over just a little bit of terminology. Hysterectomy. Okay. Hysterectomy is um, because the lay terminology is a little bit different than the medical terminology, mm-hmm. and it's important for women to know. So when they go in and talk to their providers, mm-hmm. that they really know what's still in their body and what's not there. Mm-hmm. Okay. So hysterectomy is removal of the uterus. Okay. The cervix is technically considered part of the uterus. Mm. Okay. That's the medical definition. The partial hysterectomy from a medical perspective is when we go in and do what's called a super cervical hysterectomy. We just remove the body of the uterus, but we leave the cervix. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, in la- if you call my mom right now to ask her... <laughs> Uh, what's a partial hysterectomy? I had a, did you have partial hysterectomy? Blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. She thinks in her mind, partial hysterectomy means they took my uterus, but they left my ovaries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? That's what I thought. So ovaries have zero to do with the word hysterectomy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, if they're taking your uterus, they're going to take your tubes as well. At least they should. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. So that is, um, one problem that kind of hurts women of color is really making sure that they understand what has been done to them Mm -hmm. so they can understand treatment options for problems later down the road if it's available for them. Mm. 
you know, if they still have their ovaries or not. Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, some women don't even know if they still have their ovaries or not, you know, and if they need to, you know, be evaluated, Mm -hmm. things of that nature. Mm -hmm. So, um, so we talked about that. Now, let's talk about surgeries, okay? The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology did a study in 2019, so it was a recent study, and they looked at the route of the surgery when it comes to hysterectomy. They looked at post-op care, and all of these were for treatment of uh, women who had uh, fibroids, Mm -hmm. okay? Most of them were fibroids, but they were all benign conditions in which they had a hysterectomy, meaning that they didn't have the surgery performed because of some type of cancer. Okay. Okay. And what they found in in that study is that African-American women were more likely to have an open hysterectomy, meaning we cut across your belly, mm. versus, you know, going in with a scope, you know, or doing it robotically. Uh, your recovery time is a lot harder, all of that. Mm. That was 50.1% compared to 22.9%. Okay. Of course, we were, you could say, well, that makes sense because usually our uterus are bigger because of fibroids. Um, African American women are more likely to have prior pelvic surgery, so that makes sense. Uh, higher BMI. Okay, so that makes sense. But when they adjusted for all of those factors, we were still more likely to have an open hysterectomy. Mm. That's major. Mm. Okay. They also looked at patients who had major complications after the hysterectomy. Mm. African-American women were more likely, 4.1% compared to 2.3%. Even when it came to minor complications, we were more likely to have minor complications. Once again, this is after they adjusted for, you know, large fibroids, Mm -hmm. a lot of different pelvic surgeries, BMI. Mm -hmm. They even adjusted for socioeconomic status. Wow. So even when they adjusted for that, our outcomes were still worse. Mm. Wow. Yeah, so there's a lot that... uh, we have to do quick. I told you your 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 question was loaded. It's just so <laughs> much that we could talk about. I, and you I know, know when it comes. To- I think the first thing that I think of when we, we is the complications part. So is it is that just due to you know lack of monitoring? Is that going back to that unconscious bias? Like what contributes to that? Just well, that's one thing that we really need to dig into. Okay. okay? And you guys ask, how do we solve this problem? Mm. And some of it is standardized care in the hospital setting and in the outpatient setting. Mm-hmm. And there have there's been a lot done over the years, recent years, when it comes to standardized medicine and really kind of having basic protocols for certain things. Mm-hmm. So in a way, that does help it. Mm-hmm. But we still have so much work to do because it is ultimately up to the physician Mm -hmm. to decide what they feel is the best route for you as far as surgery and then to present that information to you as the patient Mm. all right but we have to make sure that all the information is given to you as far as you making an informed decision Mm -hmm. so there's a breakdown there you know, mm. like I was talking about, you know, some of my friends who have been very bothered by the fact they're being told they need to have a hysterectomy. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I start asking about different medications or even different surgical procedures that are Mm -hmm. less invasive. And those things sometimes hadn't been discussed. Hmm. That's not always the case. Let Mm -hmm. me be clear. But too many times those things are not being discussed. Right. They're not discussing uterine artery embolization. Hmm. You know, and I don't know if that's an economic reason why it's not being mm-hmm. discussed, because mm-hmm. if, I, if I tell you about that and refer you to, you know, the um, radiologist who's mm-hmm. going to do the procedure, I don't make any money for that. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Interventional radiology makes the money for that. But it's important for your patient to know everything right. that they can do, mm-hmm. you know, and let them make that informed decision. Right. But I guess it leads me to wonder why are they informing some but not informing others? Or even with the open hysterectomy, is that cheaper than, like you said, doing the scoping? Why do they choose um, more largely for women of color to do open hysterectomy? We don't really know the reason why there is such a difference Mm -hmm. between that option for women of color Mm -hmm. versus... Uh, you know, white women, Mm -hmm. um, it will be more common to do if you have huge fibroids. Mm -hmm. If you've had previous surgery and there's risk of a lot of scar tissue, then in those scenarios, it may make sense, Mm -hmm. you know. But uh, the fact that when those factors were adjusted out. Yeah. And it was still happening at a higher rate. We don't have the answer for that as of yet. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and you, I, I know there's other things besides fibers, of course, that mm-hmm. kind of affect the uterus. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the questions, and it, I, I really apologize if it's too general because this is not my ministry, <laughs> but do women of color just overall, do we have a harder or higher issues in terms of conceiving? Is that typically a problem i mean i know age can be a factor but just in general with you know some of the things that we're statistically more likely to develop or or to have as as health issues well in general we don't necessarily have a harder time conceiving Mm -hmm. however women with fibroids that does increase their risk for infertility problems Mm. okay it can increase their risk also for preterm deliveries and other pregnancy complications for miscarriages depending on where the fibroids are located and and for too many women sterility where they just can't take the bleeding anymore. They're tired of getting transfused. They're tired of the pain. And they've been through so many different surgeries and this and that. And so they give up and, you know, they have a hysterectomy. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm. And that leads me into thinking about, I know earlier you mentioned there are certain um, conditions that maybe women of color are, are more prevalent amongst women of color or maybe we're more at risk. So can you talk to us about maybe some of the statistics involving like, you know, you hear about people with preeclampsia mm-hmm. or hypertension okay. and how that, that can complicate things. Right. Okay. We can do that. One thing I do want to mention super quick when it comes to fibroids, that's what I'm saying. It's just so much information. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's been studies that, that have shown that um, low vitamin D hmm may contribute to the growth of fibroids. Hmm. But how many times have women with fibroids, are, 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 you know, are their primary care doctors checking their vitamin D level? Hmm. 
Yeah. And who's going to be more prone for low vitamin D, for vitamin D deficiency? People of color with your melanin, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's just something to keep in mind. But yeah, so when we start talking about our pregnant patients and disparities in health care um, and preeclampsia, African-American women are preeclampsia is 60% more common in African-American women Mm. than white women. And it's also more severe. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now 60% more common and also more severe for preeclampsia and eclampsia. Okay. Mm. Preeclampsia is what um, the old folks used to call toxemia pregnancy. Okay. Okay, and you get the really high elevated blood pressures. Uh, uh, women spill a lot of protein in her kidneys because the kidneys are affected. Uh, you may see a lot of swelling, like of the face and things of that nature. We really don't use swelling as diagnostic nowadays, mm-hmm. but you still may see that. Mm. Eclampsia is when you actually have seizures. Oh wow! Mm. Okay, mm-hmm. so preeclampsia. We're trying to get you treated, delivered, all that, because we don't want you to develop the eclampsia, right? Mm-hmm. So I just want to make sure you kind of have that background. But with preeclampsia and eclampsia, 60% more common in African-American women mm. and also more severe. However, we are less likely to be hospitalized for those problems. Mm-hmm. And that just makes me think about that story. I cannot remember where she was, but I read a story of a um, woman who she had had, she had given birth, um, and she was, I think her child might have been like eight weeks, and she was just complaining of a headache mm-hmm, shortly mm-hmm. after um, giving birth, and they sent her home, and it just got worse and worse, and so she finally went to the emergency room, and I guess, I don't know if in the emergency room it's just triage, like, oh, you're not bleeding, but she ended up passing away in the emergency room because her levels like apparently her blood pressure was so elevated yeah. that I think she like stroked out. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's real, you know? So when we talk about maternal mortality, mm-hmm. okay, maternal death. All right. So let's be clear about that. Maternal mortality are deaths caused or aggravated by pregnancy. Mm. Okay. So when we look at that, a third of maternal deaths happen during pregnancy. Another third happens the day of or within one week of birth. Mm -hmm. The rest is up to a year after delivery. All right. So just because you are discharged home, Mm -hmm. it does not mean that you're out of the woods. Mm. So it's important that there is close follow up. So any patient who has chronic hypertension in pregnancy, who has gestational hypertension, preeclampsia or eclampsia, it's important after discharge home, they need to be seen back in the office definitely within 72 hours for a checkup. Mm. Just to make sure that everything is okay. And they need to be, be given very, very, very specific instructions as far as signs and symptoms, things mm-hmm. to look out mm-hmm. for. Yeah. Okay. And one of the big things is headaches. Mm. One of the big things is headaches. And so when we talk about educating our women, that is the biggest 
tool that's the biggest weapon that we have against disparities in healthcare right. is education. Mm-hmm. We have to make sure that certain things they just know and they know for themselves. Yeah. So if a woman is pregnant or she just delivered and she got a headache that Tylenol is not taken away, she needs to go to the hospital. Mm. And if they try to send her home and she still has that headache, she needs to start advocating for herself. Mm. She needs to ask that the physician comes to see her and talks to her. Because sometimes there's a breakdown in communication between what is being relayed to the physician through the nurses. Sometimes that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always great to hear directly from the patient themselves. Mm-hmm. They need to ask for the nurse supervisor. They need to ask for the patient advocate for that particular hospital. Whatever that they need to do, they need to do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or if they know that this is not right and they are discharged, go to another hospital. Mm. Especially if you're having headaches with visual changes. Mm. That's nothing to play around with. No. Okay? So I hate hearing stories like that, but they're real. They are very real. I, I actually yeah. know um, a family friend of mine passed away from eclampsia mm. um, during childbirth. And I know uh, another friend of mine, his wife passed away the day after childbirth related to that. So it is, mm. you know, it can, it's very real and it's very scary, especially when the situation is because you feel like you can't advocate for yourself or you're trying to mm-hmm. or things were just missed. Yeah. Um because you, you know weren't necessarily watched or like you said they just cause I think most times now in a healthy birth mm-hmm. um you're sent home within a day now oh yeah um when I had a child it was <laughs> we got to stay in like two days I think I did an extra day um because my son had jaundice but mm-hmm. yeah I mean they're sent home so quickly when it's like a near-death experience and I'm sure that's all insurance related but it's just like that's I mean it's, well, it's see, just that's the key it's not always insurance related okay present day insurances even after a vaginal delivery they'll still let you stay three days Hmm. you know but it's the resources that's Mm. the bigger factor okay and you know we say oh this patient is doing well so they should go and if you are uncomplicated Mm -hmm. and you this is not your first baby I think it's fine to maybe be able to go home after at least 24 hours. Okay. If everything is fine, baby's fine, it's not your first rodeo, <laughs> you know, you didn't have a really bad tear or anything of that nature, it may be okay. Your first baby, I don't like you going home 24 hours after delivery. Mm. Okay? All this is new to you. Yeah. Okay? If you've had prob- elevated pressures and things of that nature, you don't need to go home 24 hours after delivery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay? If we have to give you a medication called magnesium uh, to prevent seizures, okay? And we'll give that if you show any stimulation of your central nervous system. Mm-hmm. So let's say that you have um, gestational hypertension or, or preeclampsia, and we deem it severe, meaning mm-hmm. that your pressures are very, very high. 
or your reflexes are very brisk when we're checking your reflexes or you got a headache with visual changes those things tell me that your central nervous system is stimulated okay Mm -hmm. i'm starting to worry about eclampsia right if it's stimulated we will give you a medication called magnesium to prevent seizures Mm. and we usually give that 24 hours after for 24 hours after delivery But even once we stop that medication, I still don't want to send you home. Mm -hmm. I need to know what you're going to do for another 24 hours off the medication, right? Because some women will have spikes in their blood pressures and need medication. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different things that can happen. And we just got to play closer attention. Mm -hmm. You know, the greatest risk factor, the greatest risk factor for death in pregnancy is being black. Mm. That's major. That's a strong statement. Yeah. 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 And it's a real, yeah. it's a fact. Yeah. It's a fact, right? Yeah. In 2018, now we have a standardized checkbox for maternal deaths on all death certificates across all the United States. Okay. So it's starting to give us real information, real facts. Mm-hmm. Black women died two and a half times more often than white patients. Hmm. Wow. No, so I'm just like, why? <laughs> we got a lot of work to do. So let's talk about the why, if that's okay. You want to talk about the why? Please talk about it. the why. Okay, let's talk about the why. So number one, we are sometimes have uh, less access to quality prenatal care. Yep. Mm. And that's just real talk. Mm-hmm. Okay. Only 87% of black females in the reproductive age have insurance. Mm-hmm. More than 25% of black women meet their birth attendant. That means the person who is delivering their baby, okay, for the first time at delivery. 25%. Compared to 18% for white women. Mm-hmm. African-American women have a lower frequency of prenatal visits and they seek prenatal care later. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. People say, what's the why behind that as well, right? That's even the case in North Carolina. I I pulled the statistics in North Carolina Mm -hmm. and uh, we're not doing well. Mm. Okay. And um, in the state of North Carolina, Infant death rate for white infants, 5.4%. African-American, 13%. Mm. Late or no prenatal care for white uh, women, 23.9%. African-American women, 39.1%. Now, I feel one of the big problems with that, because I've seen it, you know, working in a hospital setting, seeing triages, patients who come in with a pregnant patients who come in with a problem. If they're 20 weeks or above, they're going to send them to labor and delivery and they're going to come in what we call OB triage. Mm. And I see these patients who go to work every day. They may be working fast food or something of that nature. They go to work every day. And here they are sometimes late in pregnancy Um, They seem very nice, well-kept, 
clearly hardworking. And I asked, well, you know, what's going on? Why haven't you gotten care? And I said, well, my Medicaid was pending and I couldn't find anyone who would take me until I had my Medicaid. Mm. Okay. Then once I got my Medicaid, they said they don't take people that, that, that far along in pregnancy. Wow. So it's like a double edged sword, right? Mm -hmm. Wow. So sometimes I see them a little bit earlier, you know, who come through OB triage and then I, I take time out to figure this out for them, try mm -hmm. to get them some help. Let's see where we can get you. Mm -hmm. And I will call the place myself. Everyone doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. And to be quite frank, sometimes it's so busy where it's hard to take on that much additional responsibility. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's important. Yeah. Right. But that's one, one factor in the state of North Carolina that's adding to women of color coming in very late for mm -hmm. prenatal care. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that is about the same percentage for the Hispanic patients, mm. which they're at 41.1%. African-American is at 39.1%. And is there something they can do in the interim? Like, I understand there's a process and red tape, but, okay, if it's pending, let's say, you know, Medicaid is pending, and but then there's a I guess for some this cutoff of now it's too late. Is there is there something to do in the interim while it's pending for for those who don't have well, the means? Well, they can see them. I mean, they can be seen. I've seen them. Right. There are some offices that do, but there's a lot of offices that don't, and that's just me being very honest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's it's not fair. Yeah. That's when we're talking about healthcare inequities. Mm -hmm. That's a healthcare inequity. Yeah. So um, when we talk about the why, so access to quality prenatal care, that's a factor. Mm -hmm. And then there's also increased susceptibility to certain health conditions. For example, obesity and hypertension. Mm -hmm. So we talked about being more prone for preeclampsia and eclampsia, but also being less likely to be hospitalized. Right. Okay. And I had, so a, I had a question. So real quick, is the is preeclampsia, is it directly tied to hypertension? Like, do you have to have high blood pressure in order to get, like, if you don't have high blood pressure, you can't get preeclampsia? Or is that, how are they connected? So it used to be part of the diagnosis that that's, you know, what is occurring. But now we feel that even if someone press, someone's pressure is normal, mm -hmm. but it's markedly increased from where they were, mm -hmm. that they may still be preeclampsed. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. And we're trying to get more people to appreciate that mm -hmm. fact. Mm -hmm. okay. You know, so just because that blood pressure was normal it may be at the very high end of normal but you're like well it's normal so i'm gonna send her home <laughs> mm -hmm. but you know her systolic or her top number is 30 points higher than what has ever been the entire pregnancy right. and it's been that high the whole time you had her in triage well we might need to watch that person a little closer yeah so these are factors we need to look at so when we talk about solutions we need more standardized protocols, mm -hmm. okay? Um, patient education, mm -hmm. 
and that starts at preconception. Mm, yeah. Okay. We need to also educate our patients to give complete personal and family histories. Okay. So mm-hmm. not just educating them about signs and symptoms, but when they go in for that first visit, hopefully it's preconception. Most of the time it's not. <laughs> they need to give a thorough family history. And that's one of the things where we drop the ball. We don't give thorough family histories. And some of that is because conditioning. Some stuff we just don't talk about right? in our families. Mm-hmm. And we have to change the narrative. We have to really start talking about our health and not, especially with women. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so taboo to, you know, for women to talk around young girls mm-hmm. about someone having a hysterectomy yes. or, or this or that. Yes. They need to know. They need to know their family history. Absolutely. Especially, yeah, you know, not especially, but definitely, you know, talking about fibroids, if 80% of women of women of color before menopause have it, I mean, that's a conversation that needs to be had, especially so that person isn't feeling so isolated and alone. But I also think, you know, as as a patient going into a doctor's office, that another reason that we might not talk about family history because we feel like the only thing we can talk about is that form that's given to us, right? Mm-hmm. And what we check off on the box. So we don't feel like we can have that extra conversation of, you know, this is what happened because it's usually not going to be asked. So yeah. if we didn't fill out on the box, we feel like, oh, well, they don't need to know. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's where we need to... The more we educate the community, mm-hmm. then patients are able to advocate for themselves yeah. mm-hmm. a lot easier. Mm-hmm. You know, where they could go in, well, doc, let me also tell you this. Mm-hmm. Well, let yeah. me also tell you this part's going on or that this thing is also happening, mm-hmm. you know. So we need to educate at starting at a younger age mm-hmm. and then allowing our women to feel empowered to speak up for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. And then, you know, unfortunately for a lot of providers, they're pushed more and they complain about it. Trust me, (laughs) they're complaining about it because they want to spend that time with the patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But they're being pushed to see more and more patients Mm. and they're pushed to do to click more and more boxes. Okay, so to do more and more paperwork and you do more on the computer. You spend more time in front of the computer screen than you do in front of your patient. Mm. So there's a lot within medicine that we kind of need to, well, ain't no kind of, that we need to change, Mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of working against us. And then the other part of the solution is that we really have to address the institutional racism in society and within the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. All right. So we have to have more providers who look like the patients that they're serving. Mm-hmm. We got to have more standard protocol, standardized protocols and more assessments as far as making sure that those protocols are being followed. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So there's more accountability. Yeah. Not just in a hospital setting, but we need to figure that out in the outpatient setting as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Because mm-hmm. I think that's where the biggest breakdown happens. And when we are able to acknowledge what's been going on for years, for centuries, and we're able to see more providers who look like the patients that are that we're serving, I think it will help with the distrust. Yeah, yeah. 
And so what are, you know, just some of the ways if if a person finds themselves, you know, feeling dismissed or like they're not being heard, like what are some of the questions, you know, women in terms of their just gynecological health, what do we need to be asking or, or how can people kind of advocate a little more when they feel that they're not being heard? Well, the first thing that I recommend for the um, patients to do is to say just that. I don't feel like you're hearing me. Mm-hmm. This is my concern. So can you spell out what we're doing mm-hmm. for X, Y, and Z? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you can also request a second opinion, especially if you're getting ready to have surgery. There's nothing wrong with getting a second opinion. Mm-hmm. If you're pregnant and you have not seen maternal fetal medicine or the high-risk OB doctors, request a consult with with Mm high-risk. Okay? So those are some of the things you can do outpatient. If it is a provider that's within a healthcare system, put your concerns in writing. Mm -hmm. They hear the pen louder than they hear the voice. And that's just factual. If you're in the in the hospital setting, request to see the doctor. You can request the charge nurse, hospital supervisor. You can even request a second opinion while you're in the hospital. Mm. And hospitals now have patient advocates. So you can always ask to speak to your patient advocate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And their job is to ad- advocate for you. Now, I've seen more and more in the news and on social media over the last six months about doulas. <laughs> and I'd just like to talk a little bit about that, if that's okay. Yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> so doulas, I feel, serve a purpose. Mm-hmm. They are there to assist women during the uh, birthing process. Mm-hmm. Um just to be someone who can advocate for the patient. Sometimes it's hard to advocate for yourself when you're in pain, mm. when you're scared, because it can be quite yep. scary, mm-hmm. you know, especially uh, think about it, you know, let's say that you live in North Carolina, but your family is in California. You really don't have anyone here with you, you know, mm-hmm. that can be quite scary. Yeah. So I think doulas do play, can play a very valuable role when it comes to um, having a harmonious experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. However, doulas are not physicians. Mm-hmm. And they are not midwives. They do not have the same training as a midwife mm-hmm. or a, a physician. Okay. Okay. And that's important to keep in mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there shouldn't be a problem with a doula being present. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, midwives. I feel that midwives serve a role um, in obstetric care. And there are some really, really good midwives out there. However, midwives should be taking care of low-risk pregnancies. Mm -hmm. They should not be taking care of high-risk pregnancies. Mm. And I'm saying all this to say, I'm seeing more on social media, uh, definitely in the last few months, Mm -hmm. uh, really promoting these deliveries at home. Natural births, yeah. Because (laughs) they're not getting the care that they need in the hospital, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Um, 
do I need to read the statistics again? Sixty <laughs> percent more common to have preeclampsia, eclampsia. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got to be careful with that. Mm-hmm. And I don't I- recommend anyone delivering at home. <laughs> okay, there needs to be some monitoring of the baby now Mm -hmm. birthing centers if you want to deliver at a birthing center that's kind of like a home environment i don't have any problems with that Mm -hmm. as long as you meet criteria Mm -hmm. to deliver at a birthing center meaning a very low risk pregnancy and that they have the proper um backup Mm -hmm. that they know who the physician is who backs them up Mm-hmm. And what hospital you go to if things aren't going well. Right. Mm-hmm. And they have very specific protocols that says at this stage, if X, Y, and Z happens, yeah. then we have to transfer you to the hospital. Yeah. And I, yeah, yeah I, I know I have friends and sorority sisters that have done, but well, they didn't deliver at home. But mm-hmm. I have friends who have like labored at home. Like, all right, when I get about seven or eight, mm-hmm. I'm going in. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, like you said, it kind of goes back to though they were lower risk mm-hmm. and they had kind of been through the process. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I definitely hear you on that. Like I, I, I don't have no kids, so I can't imagine that kind of pain. <laughs> but yeah, like with those statistics, like yeah, every there's no one size fits all mm-hmm. for it's this not. situation. Yeah. And I just had one more question. I thought of it just because um, actually some friends of mine who have had kids kind of complained about it, and I wasn't sure if, if you could speak to this or not. But I've heard there's even I guess some disparity in terms of pushing C sections mm-hmm. as opposed to vaginal births, and I don't know if it's just a quicker thing for doctors or I, I'm not sure yeah, the reasoning reason, for that. Yeah. But I, I've had you know friends mentioned like they felt pressured into you know cesareans and they you know so is that you know statistically a fact or is that just more well let's talk about that (laughs) because there's a lot with that sometimes that can be the case Mm. okay um other times you know we talked about that trust factor right Mm -hmm. so you may see someone who I'm looking at this fetal heart rate tracing and I'm praying. And that's just me being very honest. Like, Lord Jesus, we need to get this baby out, right? Mm. And that mom is like, uh-uh, y'all not doing a C-section on me today. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Because of the distrust. Right. Right? And when it's like that, you got to take time out. You got to stop everything that you're doing. You got to sit at the side of that bed. And you got to break it all the way down to that patient so she completely understands what is happening and truly what the risks are and why you want to do it. Mm. Okay? So it kind of goes both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, to be honest, there are, there, there are times when, you know, maybe someone wants to rush and go ahead and do a C-section and that patient didn't necessarily need one. Mm-hmm. But there are other times because of that history that you have women who need a C-section mm-hmm. right? who are don't want to do it. You know, there's fear involved with doing it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so it has occurred, unnecessary C-sections. Mm-hmm. But that's one. We talked about standardizations. We talked yeah. about accountability at the mm-hmm. hospital level. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the things that are that that's tracked at pretty much every hospital now is every obstetrician C-section rate. Hmm. 
and they look at it based on if this is a primary C-section, you know, versus just a repeat because someone already, you already had a previous C-section or if it's breach, you know, that doesn't count, but they look at the C-section rate Mm. and over the years it has come down. Mm. Um, Now, also when we have you on a monitor and we can see a baby that's not doing well, that those heart tones are not reassuring, it gives us the luxury of saying, hey, let's go ahead and do this C-section. Mm-hmm. We need to get the baby out, right? But if you're at home, who knows what's happening with the baby, right? Right. Yeah, so, yeah, um, yeah that's a factor. And then we get into repeat C-sections. Mm. And really knowing... Um, if this patient is a candidate to attempt a vaginal birth after cesarean or if she should have a repeat C-section, you know, so, so many factors there. And those women really should be taken care of by a physician, by an obstetrician. Mm-hmm. Right. That's good. Getting out of the midwife category. Mm. Yeah. So does that answer your question? It does. Thank you. Man, listen, I told y'all, Dr. C, she's a wealth of knowledge. And we could do this for a whole nother hour. We're going to have to bring her back. But I definitely want to tell y'all, you guys can catch her on Thursdays mm-hmm. on Facebook. She gives out great information. Right now, she's the Volvar specialist, and yes. she is talking about the <laughs> private face. So you want to talk a little bit about what the private face is, and y'all can catch her on her lives and get sure, more information. Sure, sure, sure. Yes, I am a Volvar skin specialist. I help women to understand and optimize the skin care of the vulva, mm-hmm. or what I like to call the private face Mm -hmm. (laughs) so they are able to realize that this area can be just as beautiful as their public face Mm -hmm. okay (laughs) yeah so every thursday at 7 p.m i'm live on both facebook and instagram Mm -hmm. at dr sin obgyn that is d-r-c-y-n obgyn and I give helpful tips when it comes to the private face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'd like for all of you guys to become part of my Volvacious Village. Yes. Oh. We love it. We love it. And I'm telling you, like, the information is really, really great. She has mm-hmm. talked so far, I mean, everything about, you know, even talking about maternal health. Yeah. She's talked about, you know, shaving down there, waxing. Mm-hmm. So it's really, really, really great information. And yes. we will definitely have her information about um, the, you know, Volvar Skin Specialist, the Facebook and IGs. We'll have all that information in the show notes mm-hmm. so you can guys can find her. And do you also want to, you know, tell them about your website? Yes. So, you know, with all of these disparities in healthcare and with COVID, it makes you think differently mm-hmm. on how we deliver healthcare. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I am the founder and medical director of Virtual GYN PLLC. Love it. And I provide feminine care from anywhere. Mm-hmm. So if you reside in the state of North Carolina, even if you happen to be in Miami for the weekend, if you have any <laughs> urgent feminine needs mm-hmm. or if you're one of those patients that they told you they need to take your uterus out and you're like, hold on, I'm only 30, mm-hmm. I don't have no babies, do I really need to do that? Right. You can also get a second opinion. 
So please go to virtualgyn.com, that's B-I-R-T-U-A-L-G-Y-N.com, and schedule an appointment. Yes. yes. Oh, man, this diva docket was full today. Yes. We are not going to do a diva letter no. or the quick sense because this was just so full, so meaty, and we mm-hmm. are definitely going to have you back on because I still have questions. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yes. Yes. So, in the meantime, if you would like to possibly have a question read on an episode, you can email us at divaadvice at gmail.com. It's D-I-V-A A-D-V-I-C-E at gmail.com. Now, we will be back in a couple weeks, but in the meantime, in between time, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Divas and Duckets. Yes. And thank you guys so much for all the reviews that you guys have been leaving us about the past episodes. We appreciate it. It is our joy to God to provide our Mm -hmm. D&D family um, information that can help you and help our community. So until next time, have a great attitude. Bye.